Next on Lectures in History, Wagford College professor Mark Burns teaches a class about U.S. public opinion, the rise of radio as a national media, and the debate about whether to enter World War II. He outlines the arguments both for and against intervention and uses radio clips to demonstrate the role it played in shaping American views and foreign policy. All right. So last week we talked about the coming of the war in Europe and the coming of the war in Asia. So what I'd like to talk about today is the American reaction to all of that, what's called the great debate over American involvement in World War II. This is arguably the most important debate on foreign policy in all of American history. And public opinion, probably more than any previous debate, mattered here. In part because for the first time there was a way of gauging public opinion. Uh, the Gallup poll organization had begun regularly polling the American people. And so leaders had a much better sense, a much more direct sense of what the people actually thought. So you're going to see a lot of polling data in this, in, in fleshing out exactly what it was that Americans thought. So I'm going to focus quite a bit on public opinion, and then we'll talk about actual policy as a reflection of that public opinion. At the start of the war in Europe, my argument is that there were two basic positions held almost unanimously by the American people. They wanted Britain and France to win the war, to defeat Germany, and they did not want the United States to have to fight in that war to make it happen. And over the course of the two plus years of this, this debate, nothing that happened really changed fundamentally those two points of view. There will be changes in American opinion, but those two fundamental views remain the same. Even on the eve of Pearl Harbor, most Americans still wanted to avoid direct American involvement as a belligerent in World War II. The great debate moved the American public in the direction of risking war, but never fully convinced most Americans that the United States should declare war against Germany. Only Germany's declaration of war against the United States after Pearl Harbor convinced Americans to declare war on Germany. So that's one thing. The debate is about, on the surface, how much aid should the United States give to the Allies to help them defeat Nazi Germany? But below the surface, I think, there's a much more important and fundamental debate going on. What role should the United States play in the world going forward? Should it, as the anti-interventionists argued, remain a hemispheric power, dominating North and South America, as arguably it had done for the last century? Should it try to do that in a world dominated by hostile dictatorships? Or, as the interventionists argued, should it recognize that the United States was a global power? and be willing to join the fight against those dictators to prevent those dictators from dominating the world? That's a big question. And behind all the details, and we'll be talking about a fair amount of detailed arguments here, that I think is the fundamental question Americans are considering. What role should the United States play in the world going forward? The great debate that takes place over the two years between the beginning of the war and Pearl Harbor gradually moved the public in the direction of a much more active American engagement in the war, in the world, and set the stage for America's post-war emergence as a global superpower. But, and this is the significant part, without ever fully convincing most Americans that it was America's responsibility to assume global leadership. To understand this debate, I think we have to go back and remind ourselves about how Americans reacted to the First World War. I think by the 1930s, Americans are suffering something of a hangover from World War I. It's something they now really regret. After the United States rejected participation in Woodrow Wilson's League of Nations, most Americans kind of settled back into the much more comfortable idea that the United States could ignore the rest of the world, Europe in particular. It did not need to be engaged. And the events of the 1920s, and especially the 1930s, really reinforced the idea that involvement in the last war had been a mistake. It was a departure from tradition, and it was one that the United States should not repeat ever again. 
that mistake showed the wisdom of the founding generation's foreign policy, of staying out of European quarrels. The old world was corrupt, it was decadent, it was prone to warfare, and nothing good could come out of American involvement in that. What that led to in the 1930s was a growing consensus, particularly in Congress, that what we needed to do in the United States was create a legal structure that would prevent that from happening. From 1935 to 1937, you had a series of laws which collectively we call the neutrality legislation. And the basic idea here was to make sure, by law, that the United States couldn't make the mistakes it made last time. And it targeted very specifically the things that Americans now blamed for American involvement in the previous war. Specifically, if there's another war, there should be an impartial arms embargo on all belligerents, all belligerents. Aggressor, victim, it doesn't matter. Impartial, all belligerents. We don't want to be selling arms to anyone. That only threatens to drag us into the war. A ban on loans. If we loan money to a belligerent, we maybe have an interest in making sure they win the war. So no loans. A ban on Americans traveling on belligerent ships. We don't want Americans being killed in this war accidentally because they happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. That happened last time, it shouldn't happen again. In each of these cases, Americans are responding directly to something that happened between 1914 and 1917. And a retrospective sense that this had been a mistake. Americans had made all of these mistakes last time, next time we won't make those mistakes. Now this is coming from Congress, which is one of the things that makes it unusual. Foreign policy is primarily the purview of the president. And here's Congress basically saying, we're gonna limit what the president can do. So it's probably not surprising to you that the president was not crazy about these ideas. FDR did not like his flexibility in foreign policy being limited, but he also recognized that this is popular. The people are behind this. So he signed these pieces of legislation but at the same time warned that they could be problematic in the future. And events, of course, would bear him out. It does become problematic in the future. In particular, by 1938-1939, with the Czech crisis and then the Polish crisis, for most Americans, it became clear that a war was becoming more and more likely in Europe. And not just any general hypothetical war, but a specific war potentially between Nazi Germany on the one hand and Britain and France on the other. And they began to change their minds, at least a little bit, about this neutrality legislation. Americans almost unanimously had a negative opinion of Nazi Germany, and generally, not, not universally, but generally had a positive opinion of Great Britain and France. And so when the idea of a war between those two sides began to become more and more possible, American public opinion began to shift at least a little bit. Six months before the war began, the Gallup organization asked Americans, if there was a war, who would they favor? And would they be favoring changing the law? Do you think the law should be changed so that we would sell war materials to England and France in case of war? And a solid majority said yes. Now remember, that's against the law at this point. But when faced with the idea that it's England and France that would be on the receiving end, well, yeah, we do support doing that. This is not a theoretical war, it's a real war. But there are limits. There are limits to that. Americans drew the line at extending credit. Should we lend money to England and France? And now 69% said no. That's different. We don't want loans out there. And what this is really reflecting is American resentment at the fact that a lot of the war debts from World War I were never fully paid back. We didn't get our money back last time, we're not gonna make that mistake again. And it also reflects the idea that if we have as our debtors 
England and France, we have an interest in making sure they win so that they can pay us back. We don't want that to drag us into another war. So this part of the neutrality legislation, a clear majority, more than two-thirds, favors keeping. Similarly, what about traveling on ships? 82% say the United States should not allow its citizens to travel on the ships of country now at war. They'll be in danger. If those ships are sunk and Americans die, that will become a reason to get involved in the next war. And what they're remembering in particular is the Lusitania, the British passenger liner that was sunk by a German U-boat in 1915 at the loss of many American lives. That gives America a stake in the war. We'll get dragged in if Americans die. During World War I, Woodrow Wilson asserted this as a basic American right. We should not have to worry that our lives are in danger when we're traveling. Now Americans say, no, it's too dangerous. It's okay for the government to forbid that so that if it happens, it's not our responsibility. The government doesn't have to protect people or avenge people who have been hurt in this way. Again, should the United States allow American ships to go anywhere or should they stay out of war zones? 84% stay out of war zones. And again, this is the opposite of the First World War. Wilson had argued that American ships should be free to go wherever they want. We're a neutral country. We're not at war. We should not be endangered just because we're carrying on trade. Now, in the 1930s, again, this is right at the beginning of the war itself, September 1939, 84% said, stay out of the war zones. So there's some movement on that one point. Should we be allowed to sell arms to Britain and France? But on all the other proposals, Americans stayed where they were. Keep the neutrality legislation. Don't change it to allow these pitfalls from becoming possible pitfalls in the next war. So why did Americans support changing the arms embargo? Why did they support changing it for Britain and France? And I think the answer to that comes down to an almost universally negative view of Nazi Germany. It's Hitler. It's Hitler's behavior that Americans are responding to. August of 1939, Gallup asked the public if Hitler's claims against Poland, the Polish corridor that we talked about last week, were justified. 86% said no. What he's demanding is wrong. If a war, therefore, comes out of this, it'll be his fault. And then, a couple of weeks later, when the war did begin, 82% of the American people said it was Germany's fault. Virtually no one blamed England or France or Poland. It was Germany's fault. They are the ones who started this. There is a clear-cut aggressor in this war. This is not a case of both sides. Germany's at fault. Germany's the aggressor. Britain and France are defending the victim. So we don't actually feel neutral about that. These two sides are not the same. There's a significant difference here. Once it was an actual war instead of a theoretical war, American opinion shifted a little bit. They still don't want to be involved in the war. They still want to avoid most of the mistakes that took place in the First World War. But they're not completely neutral. Not really. They favor Britain and France. They oppose Nazi Germany. But they don't want to fight. They don't want to be actively involved in the war. And in fact, opposition to becoming actively involved in the war grew after the war began. If you look at the interviewing dates for this poll, August 30, so a couple of days before the war actually began. A lot of people saw it coming, but it was before the war actually began. And then carrying on through the first few days of, of the war in Europe. When asked if the United States should send its army and navy to fight, 84% said no. So that's overwhelmingly against fighting. But look what happens weeks later. 
95%. Americans did not want to fight this war. They were not neutral. They took sides, but they did not want to fight. It is not our fight. I think it's worth asking why Americans were so resolved to stay uninvolved if they really believed one side was right and the other side was wrong. And I think the answer to that is that they were confident that Britain and France would win. Americans were asked who they thought was going to win, the Allies, 82%. In other words, we don't have to fight this thing. The Allies are going to take care of it. They will win it. We can be on their side, we can sell them goods, we can root for them, but they'll win on their own. They don't need us. Okay, this is important to remember. They're overconfident, in fact, in an Allied victory when the war begins. They're underestimating Germany's ability to fight and win the war. Another interesting shift takes place, though, when you raise the possibility that Germany might win the war. If it looks like England and France might be defeated, then should the United States declare a war? 44% suddenly say yes. Still not a majority. It's still most Americans are against involvement in the war, even if Nazi Germany is going to win. But that's a huge jump in the number of people who would be willing to go to war. And this, I think, is what's fleshing out this view of American public opinion. They don't want to fight but they think it might be necessary, at least some Americans think it might be necessary, but only, only if it's the only way to keep Nazi Germany from winning. So, to sum up all of this, the fundamental tension, I would argue, in American opinion is that Americans overwhelmingly wanted the Allies to win and the Nazis to lose, and most were willing to help the Allies to win, but only up to a point. If the aid threatened to drag the United States in as an active belligerent, many Americans got cold feet and a majority were against involvement under any circumstances. A couple more poll uh, numbers I want to show you that I think are really illustrative of the way American opinion shifts back and forth depending on how they're thinking about these issues at any given moment. October, so this is now after the fall of Poland. Do you think the United States should do everything possible to help England and France win the war except go to war ourselves? 62% say yes. So that's a powerful majority in favor of aid to Great Britain. Everything possible, no limitations put on that, except going to war ourselves, 62%. Look what happens when you put this phrase into it. At the risk of getting into the war ourselves, the numbers flip. It's the same question except the risk of getting involved is raised. Suddenly, 66% don't want to have anything to do with it. We shouldn't do everything to help Britain and France win if it means we might get involved. That's just a difference of framing the question, and it produces a huge difference. And I think that's telling you something really interesting and very important about American public opinion. They want the Allies to win, but they sure don't want to fight this war themselves. This is what Franklin Roosevelt has to deal with as president. <laughs> a public that wants a British and French victory, but doesn't want to fight. And that's what he's trying to satisfy when he's forming American policy. And again, he's very, very acutely aware of this. He follows public opinion polls. He has all of this information. He knows where the public is. And so he has to craft a policy that will coincide with what the public thinks. And in fact, he does a very, very good job of this. When the war began, FDR did what he almost always did. He went on the radio. He gave one of his famous fireside chats. And what he said reflected what Americans wanted. He says, the United States, of course, won't be a belligerent in this conflict. It will do its best to stay out of it, to not get dragged into it. And then he says something really interesting. He refused to ask the public to be neutral in thought 
as Woodrow Wilson had famously done in 1914. Because he knew they weren't. They're not neutral. And I'm not going to ask you to be neutral. This nation will remain a neutral nation. But I cannot ask that every American remain neutral in thought as well. Even a neutral has a right to take account of facts. Even a neutral cannot be asked to close his mind or close his conscience. There's a right and wrong side in this war, and we all know it. We shouldn't be neutral about this. And I'm not asking you to be neutral about this. He knew where the public was, and he expressed where the public was. So what do you do about that in terms of policy? It's one thing to just talk about not being neutral in thought. What do you do in terms of policy? And the policy that he crafted, again, closely resembled what we've seen in American public opinion. He comes up with something called cash and carry. Americans should be allowed to sell goods to Great Britain, but the British have to come and get it, they have to pay cash, and they have to take it away on their own ships. That fits exactly in that polling data I was just showing you. Yes, we'll sell goods. Yes, we will not, under any circumstances, give them loans. And we will not put our ships or our people at risk. So if they want to come and pay cash and carry it away themselves, they can do that. It's the safest possible policy. It satisfies the desire to aid England and France by selling them more goods, but it does not put Americans at risk. Once they take the goods from our ports, it's not our problem anymore. If those ships get attacked, they're not our ships. If lives are lost, they're not American lives. It's beautifully crafted to perfectly capture what the American people were willing to do. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that's FDR understanding exactly what the public was willing to tolerate at any given point. And that, I think, is what we're going to see throughout the entire debate. FDR is able to do that over and over again. In the fall of 1939, then, it seemed like Americans were done, right? They have cash and carry. Congress approved it. FDR signed it. We have our policy, we're good to go. And you know what happens next. The Nazi uh, offensive in the spring of 1940, the fall of France. And that changed everything. Yeah, Shelby. Um, so the cash and carry policy only applied to Great, uh, Great Britain and France, right? Or was it like? Could it have applied to like Germany or another? Theoretically, I suppose. I'm not sure about the specific language of, 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 the, lang of the legislation, but everybody knew what the, lang what the legislation was actually accomplishing. Uh, there, was no, there was no expectation that, that, that Nazi Germany would be buying uh, war materials from the United States. So is the cash and carry policy like a somewhat of like the start of what would become the Lend-Lease program? Yes and no. We're going to get to that a little later. But ultimately, I'm going to argue that Lend-Lease is actually a break from this policy. But it's a step in that direction, yes. Yeah. Cash and carry was OK as long as it looked like England and France were likely to win. That's what changed in the spring and summer of 1940. The fall of France completely changed America's opinion of this war because up until then, it was perfectly plausible to believe that Great Britain and France would win the war against Nazi Germany. Once France surrendered, that was a lot harder to imagine. What now? What if Britain falls? What if the Allies lose the war? This is when, I would argue, the great debate really begins, the summer of 1940. Because now, a much tougher question is on the table. Cash and carry might work. It might work for some time. But what if Britain is about to fall? Then what do we do? And two organizations came into being in the summer of 1940 on each side of that question. 
the Anti-Interventionist America First Committee and the Interventionist Group, the awkwardly named Committee to Defend America by Aiding the Allies. That's a mouthful. Nobody ever said that because <laughs> it was too long. Uh, it was generally known as the White Committee, named after William Allen White, a uh, Kansas newspaper editor. So you have America First, which says the United States should remain aloof, should not take any risk of getting involved in the war, and the Committee to Defend America by Aiding the Allies, that basically says the United States should do everything possible to make sure that England wins because aiding the Allies is defending America. That's the equation that they're making. Those two things are the same. If you want to defend America, defend the Allies. America First is saying if you want to defend America, defend America. Hoard America's resources for America first. Don't give them to the Allies. So what I'd like to do now is, is talk about some of the major issues. I won't talk about all of them. There are far too many. This is a widespread and varying debate. But there are certain key themes that I think are, that are central to the debate between these two organizations. The anti-interventionists, the America First Committee, basically make the argument that staying out of European wars is America's tradition. This goes all the way back to George Washington. The United States should not get itself entangled in European affairs. It certainly shouldn't get involved in European wars. And this is a foreign policy that has served America well. It did so for over 100 years until the United States broke from that tradition in 1917 and went to war in Europe. That was a mistake, and it's a mistake that should not be repeated. We've learned the wisdom of the founders. They were right to stay out of European affairs, and we should not make that mistake again. The interventionists of the White Committee make a different argument. The policy that served the United States well in the late 1700s and in the 1800s is not appropriate in the 20th century. The United States was a weak, underdeveloped nation in the late 1700s and the early 1800s. Of course it made sense to stay out of European wars, but that's not true anymore. The United States is now the most powerful economic state in the world. It has global interests. It is not weak and underdeveloped. It's a continental nation with global interests. And technology has made the world smaller. The old tradition made sense when the United States had the two greatest natural defenses in the world, the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans. That was our protection. But that protection is not what it used to be. Military technology has changed. Air power, in particular, allows countries to project their military power in a way that has never been true before. The world is, for all intents and purposes, smaller than it used to be. We are in greater danger from a foreign power than we ever were in the past. The world has changed. The anti-interventionists argue, well, in that case, we need better hemispheric defenses. That's what we need, then. That only reinforces the idea that what we need is Fortress America. We need to build up our hemispheric defenses, become so strong that no one will dare attack us. And that means every bit of military hardware we produce needs to stay with us, stay here in this hemisphere. We are a hemispheric power. We should remain a hemispheric power. The interventionists argue, you don't understand the fight we're in. Britain is fighting our battle. Britain is our first line of defense. If they fall to Nazism, we are in danger. We can't just hunker down in this hemisphere. We have to recognize that the British are fighting our fight and we have to do everything possible to help them win that fight. The anti-interventionist said, you're exaggerating the threat. There's no real threat to America here. American interests in Europe and Asia aren't in mortal danger. 
We're not going to be attacked. Even if, worst case scenario, even if Nazi Germany wins, even if Imperial Japan wins its war, we'll be fine. We may not like it, but we'll be fine. We can trade with those countries. We can survive in that war, in that world. The interventionists respond, you don't understand the threat. An Axis-dominated world will be a threat to the United States. It's a threat to the United States militarily, maybe not in terms of the United States being invaded and conquered. No, that's likely not going to happen. But it's still a military threat. We can be damaged by Imperial Japan and Nazi Germany, and perhaps even more significantly. It's an economic threat to our well-being. If the Nazis dominate Europe and control the natural resources of Europe, if the Japanese conquer and control the resources of Asia, what will we do? You can say we'll trade with them, but what if they don't trade with us? What if they isolate us economically? How do we grow and prosper? And remember, 1939, 1940, the Great Depression is not fully over yet. It's gotten better, but it's still on. Americans are really concerned about their economic well-being. This argument says we might be in a state of permanent depression. We may not have any capacity for economic growth in a world dominated by Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. This is a threat to our interests. We are in danger. Our whole way of life can be destroyed by a world dominated by these dictatorships. The interventionists argue what will destroy American democracy is this war. If we become involved in this war, democracy at home will die. We saw a taste of it in the last war, the centralization of power in the federal government. Unprecedented government control, government regulation, that will be just a tiny portion of what will happen in the next war. The next war will be longer and harder and more deadly for Americans. And one of the main casualties will be American democracy. The liberal component of the anti-interventionists also argued that this would mean the end of any kind of reform. If you support Roosevelt's New Deal, it's going to die. Progressivism died during World War I. The New Deal will die in World War II. Domestic reform will be over. The war will force us to limit freedom, and democracy will die. The anti-interventionists said, we're concerned about democracy too, but the thing that's going to kill democracy is an Axis victory. That's the real threat to us. Our democracy will be impossible in an Axis-dominated world. Maybe we won't be invaded or attacked, but we'll have to be on guard for it, won't we? What will that mean? Massive defense spending, high taxes, a permanent state of preparation for war, economic hardship because of lack of trade. Those are the things that will destroy our democracy. So they're both arguing that the other's position will somehow destroy democracy. And they're both, I think, sincerely believing that seeing a fundamental threat to the American way of life if the other side gets its way. Questions, comments about that summary? And it is just a summary of a pretty wide-ranging debate. So how are Americans hearing this? How are they being exposed to this? And the answer is the radio. And that's another thing that made this debate different, is that it's taking place when there's, for the first time, really, in American history, a truly national medium to carry out this debate. By the time the war broke out, there are four national radio networks. NBC Red, which was its primary uh, network, carried most of their popular entertainment programs. NBC Blue, which tended more toward news and opinion. CBS and the Mutual Network. And I think this point is incredibly important. As early as 1940, 
more than half of the American people got their news from the radio primarily. Newspapers have already been displaced by radio. They're getting their news, they're also getting opinion. Speakers are going on the radio, making the case direct to the American people directly. This had never happened before. There had been debates, of course, in American foreign policy, but they were mostly carried out in newspapers and among elites. This is available to virtually everybody in America. Almost the entire country is covered by radio networks. And significantly, according to the census data from 1940, lots of people have radios. 90% of people in urban areas outside the South, somewhat smaller uh, percentage in southern urban areas, about 79%. Among urban whites, radio ownership is almost universal, 94.4%. What this means is that the overwhelming majority of the American people have access to the radio. They either own one themselves, they know somebody, a neighbor, a family member, and when important events happen, like a presidential address, they can gather at that person's house and listen to it. Nothing like this had ever happened before. We, of course, take this for granted. We instantly know everything. We have access to hear anything at any time. This was new. This had never happened before. You could reach, in one speech, virtually everyone in America, at least in theory. And so that's going to shape the debate as well. I started off by talking about how important public opinion is going to be to shaping policy. This is going to factor into then how American public opinion is shaped. If we want to affect the public, we have to address the public. In other words, this debate can't just be among elites, foreign policy experts. It has to be made accessible to the average person. And so both sides went out of their way to try to appeal to the average person. Now, in general, they started out with traditional speeches the way politicians had always done. I'm going to give you a couple of, uh, of clips to illustrate the sort of things Americans were hearing on their radios. This is a man named Hanford McNider. He had been acting Secretary of War. He's an anti-interventionist, so listen in this, in this clip for those themes I was just talking about. I have heard no accredited military authority who thinks that we are in imminent danger of invasion from anywhere. What is more, if we can depend upon the statement of the Undersecretary of War, and I think he knows what he is talking about, we soon shall have the necessary men trained and under arms to turn any hostile approach to our shores into a first-class disaster for whomever tries it. Two, I am unalterably opposed to any attempt on our part to further demand a place in the old world's everlasting quarrels. Europe and Asia have been in constant battle over the balances of power for thousands of years, and they'll be at it long after all of us here are gone. Our fathers came to this land to leave all that behind them. If we put ourselves back into it now, we shall lose this republic. So you can see some of those themes. We can't really be attacked. It would be a disaster if someone tried. Europe and Asia, the old world, quarrelsome, warlike. They're always like this. They always will be like this. This is not our problem. Our people, our fathers, left that behind. We shouldn't voluntarily return to it. This next clip is going to be from an interventionist, a man named Wendell Wilkie, who was the Republican nominee for president in 1940. Wilkie echoes a lot of the uh, White Committee arguments. We must bend every effort to keep Britain afloat. And let us be very clear as to this fact. We cannot keep Britain afloat with mere words. We cannot keep Britain afloat with no risk and undelivered goods. Any such policy as that spells destruction. It is the most dangerous course that America could possibly pursue. We cannot defend freedom that way. 
The danger is not aiding Britain. You say it's dangerous to aid Britain, it's dangerous not to. Our freedom is at stake. That's the dangerous thing, not helping Great Britain fight its fight. The airways in 1940, 1941 were filled with speeches like this. Basically, a major public figure could go to the radio networks and request time and probably be granted a good 15, maybe 20 minutes to speak on one of the major networks. They didn't always speak in these set pieces. Sometimes they actually had debates, face-to-face -face debates. There were a number of programs on the air, on the various networks, that were designed around this concept. There was America's Town Meeting of the Air, American Forum of the Air, the University of Chicago Roundtable, and virtually every one of these debates that went around American foreign policy had a representative of either America First, the White Committee, or very often both. So it wasn't just that they were giving speeches. They were actually actively debating with one another on the air, usually live, although not always, um, for the American people to listen to. But again, this is, still, this is still elite opinion, right? These are still experts. These are still foreign policy people. And one of the really interesting things about this debate is that both sides recognized that that wasn't good enough. You had to do more than that. If you're trying to reach the average person, you want them to hear the average person. Not enough to just have politicians, presidents, senators, representatives, the elites. What about the average person? And so you had an innovation that took place that really foreshadows a lot of what we now see in political advertising and making political arguments in the media. Interviewing average Americans. And now to the East Coast, New York City. And here is Fred Reedon, automobile machinist, 33 years old, married. How about it, Mr. Reedon? Is the British fleet one of our first lines of defense? Nuts. Defense from what? Hitler may be crazy, but he's not so crazy as to take us on unless we deliberately push him into it. Just an average guy in New York, but speaking common sense, what the average person thinks. This is basically a man-on-the-street kind of interview thing. You don't have to be in a foreign policy expert to have an opinion on the war. And if this is what you think, it's a valid opinion. Other people hold that. The America First Committee has brought you the opinions of seven patriotic American citizens from different parts of the country and different walks of life. These seven represent the feelings and beliefs of a vast majority of our people. Different places, different walks of life. Somewhere out there, you heard somebody who's at least a little bit like you, who represents you and your opinion. This is a really different way of trying to shape public opinion, not by telling people what they should think, but telling them, here's what you already think from someone just like you. Another technique that I think is really fascinating was introduced by, again, America First. It was a representative from Pennsylvania named James Van Zandt. And he thought that the most important thing was to hear from the veterans of the last war. Right? Who better? to tell us about the dangers of war than the people who suffered the cost of war themselves. So we actually set up a broadcast from a veteran's hospital outside Washington. He said, we need to listen to these people because they are the ones who... The appalling cost of war, not in dollars and cents alone, but in shattered bodies, suffocated lungs, and shadowed minds. These men understand war and its devastating effect on mankind. They know it firsthand. They're not the politicians. They're the people who actually fought the last war. They're the ones we should listen to. And so he interviewed them. In your own words, comrade, what do you think of the United States entering another European war? We don't want to go over there, but they come here, we're all ready to fight. Thank you, comrade, for your frank opinion. <laughs> that expression, ladies and gentlemen, is from the lips of a real World War veteran. Now let us visit this veteran in a wheelchair. So you notice a couple things there. First of all, there's an audience applauding, like in a regular radio program that they were used to hearing. You actually brought an audience in. Very straightforward, simple opinion. 
If we're attacked, we'll fight back, but we don't want to go over there. Nothing complicated, very straightforward. We'll defend ourselves, but we're not going to interject ourselves. And then at the end, remember it's radio, so he's painting a picture. Now I'm going to talk to this veteran in a wheelchair. And immediately that picture is in the mind of the listener. This is a really sophisticated, at least for the time, way of trying to get across a political opinion. As far as I know, nothing like this had ever happened before. And it shows how important this debate was, that they're innovating. They're thinking of new ways to convince people. They recognize that the same old speeches from the same old political figures might not do it. But maybe if you hear from a veteran directly in his own words. So what does this produce? What does all of this debate, all of these various techniques, what does it do to American public opinion? That's ultimately the important thing. I think the best illustration, to finally get back to your question earlier, uh, Joey, is the Lend-Lease Act. That's what shows the extent to which public opinion did change and the extent to which it did not change. At the end of 1940, Winston Churchill informed Roosevelt that cash and carry wasn't going to work anymore. Uh, the British were basically running out of cash. It still needed aid from the United States, but it couldn't afford to pay cash anymore. It was going to be unable to do that much longer. And this created a dilemma, obviously, for FDR. The cash and carry policy had, at least in theory, perfectly fit American public opinion, but now it won't work. What do you do instead? How do you compensate for this problem? And so FDR came up with something called the Lend-Lease Bill that would allow him, as president, to provide military aid to any country's defense he determined was vital to US security. The president gets to decide this. What's vital to US security? Now think about the neutrality legislation, which was basically meant to control what the president was allowed to do, restrict what the president was allowed to do. This is going in the exact opposite direction. Now the president gets to decide for himself what vital, uh, vital interests are and who deserves American aid as a result of that. The idea was that the United States would lend or lease arms to Britain with the understanding that after the war, the United States would be paid back in kind somehow. FDR came up with a really clever analogy to sell this to people. And again, remember, he's always trying to sell this to the public. We just talked about appealing to the average person. So how do you take this idea of lending or leasing military equipment and make it a matter of common sense to the people. FDR was a master at this. And so he called reporters into his office. That's how they used to do press conferences. They would just crowd around his desk in the Oval Office. And he said this to them. Now what I am trying to do is eliminate the dollar sign. Get rid of the silly, foolish old dollar sign. Suppose my neighbor's home catches fire and I have a length of garden hose. If he can take my garden hose and connect it up with his hydrant, I may help him to put out his fire. I don't say to him before that operation, neighbor, my garden hose cost me $15. You have to pay me $15 for it. I don't want $15. I want my garden hose back after the fire is over. That's all this is. You're lending your neighbor a hose. Who wouldn't do that? Who would ask for payment before lending the hose? Nobody would do that. After all, it's in your interest that your neighbor's house doesn't burn down because yours might catch fire too. It's a beautiful attempt at capturing the common sense mindset of the average person, putting it in terms that they can understand. The other side didn't much go for this, uh, this analogy. Uh, Republican senator and anti-interventionist Robert Taft of Ohio responded by saying, lending war equipment is a good deal like lending chewing gum. You don't want it back. Also a good line, FDR had the better line. But he had the better line because the public was with him on this. Ultimately, the public was behind him. Again, to go to polling data. Asked at the end of 1940 if America's future safety depended on England winning the war, 68% said yes, it does. Americans were convinced Britain had to win the war. And, significantly, Americans were also convinced that Britain would not win the war without American aid. 
If the United States stopped sending war materials to England, do you think England would lose the war? 85% said yes. We know how important this is. We know it is essential to Britain's survival that they continue to get aid from the United States. And America's safety depends on England winning the war. Our interests are engaged here. It is essential that Britain win. It is essential that we give them aid. So what happens when they can't pay for it? FDR said they'll be willing to give it to them, lend it or lease it like they would a garden hose. The American people will go along with that. And he was right. Americans still want to stay out of the war, but they think it's more important that England win the war, even at the risk. Now remember, when even at the risk of war was put in that earlier poll, it flipped public opinion. Now 61% say, even at the risk of war, we should continue to help Great Britain. So yeah, this, this is a risk. If we change our policy, and it's not just cash and carry anymore, we're actually giving them war material. The risk is higher, but it's worth it. Winning the war is that important. So it's probably not surprising that when FDR put this proposal before Congress, the public is behind that too. This question basically asks about the Lend-Lease Act. Should our government lend or lease war materials to the British to be paid back in the same materials or other goods after the war is over? 68% said yes. Once again, FDR found that public opinion sweet spot. This is what the public believed. This is what the public was willing to go along with. It's a big change, right? Because what the United States is now doing is much different from cash and carry. And the anti-interventionists made a point of emphasizing how much of a change this was. This is basically, the America First people said, a declaration of war against Germany. We're not calling it that. That's basically what we're doing. We are siding unequivocally with Great Britain by giving them, not selling them, which you could just sort of say, well, that's business, right? That's just a commercial tra transaction. We're giving them weapons of war. That's for all intents and purposes joining this war. We're not sending our soldiers, but we're sending our material. And if we send our material today, we will send our soldiers tomorrow. That's the next logical step. We're going to get into this war. Roosevelt and his supporters said, no, this is the best way to make sure that doesn't happen. If England falls, we will have to go to war. If England survives, we may not. Our best chance of staying out of this thing is keeping Britain afloat, making sure Great Britain doesn't fall. Ultimately, Congress agreed with Roosevelt. Strong margins, but again, not unanimous. There still is division in the United States, public opinion and in Congress. But those are comfortable margins. The members of the House and the members of the Senate were overwhelmingly in favor of Roosevelt's proposal, as was the public in general. So ultimately, what has the great debate accomplished? What has it done between the beginning of the war and now the spring of 1941? I think you can argue the interventionists had convinced the American people to do everything possible short of war to help Great Britain, even now at the risk of war. Americans are willing to take that chance. But they had not convinced Americans to go to war. That was still a step too far for most Americans. They had sort of nudged the public in the direction of a more active role for the United States in world affairs, but had not convinced Americans to take the lead in world affairs. Well, we'll continue to help Great Britain, but we don't want to actually fight. We'll assist, but we won't lead. So in that sense, I think you can argue that the anti-interventionists also have succeeded to a certain extent. Most Americans remained convinced that it was best to stay out. They did not want to go to war. And even after the Lend-Lease Act was approved, that's what Americans wanted. Asked directly if they should declare war in April, 81% said stay out. 
They're happy with Lend-Lease. They're willing to do Lend-Lease. They still want to stay out. Overwhelmingly want to stay out of the war. But, and this is also really interesting, they don't think it's going to happen. They don't think the United States will stay out. Asked if ultimately America would get involved, 82% said, yeah, it's going to happen. We will go in. We don't want to. It'll be against our will. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And again, these are almost mirror images of each other, right? 81% say stay out. 82% say, yeah, we're going to go in. It's inevitable in all likelihood. But we don't want to. This is not something we are going to do unless we absolutely have to. So has public opinion changed? Somewhat. Somewhat. Remember, 1939, 95% say the United States should stay out. In the weeks before Pearl Harbor, in November of 1941, 26% said the United States probably should just go ahead and declare war. So that is a significant shift. That's a 20% shift of people who think a declaration of war makes sense. So the previous two years had changed something. But still, most people are against it. And this is, again, just weeks before Pearl Harbor. The anti-interventionist argument against war was still a powerful one in the minds of most Americans. Americans kind of want to have it both ways. They want the Nazis vanquished. They're willing to send material aid to Great Britain to make that happen, but they don't want to sacrifice and fight the war themselves. Only when Germany took that decision out of the hands of Americans by declaring war on the United States on December 11, 1941, did the United States go ahead and declare war on Germany. Even after Pearl Harbor, the United States did not immediately declare war on Germany. Germany hadn't attacked. Germany declared war first, took the decision out of American hands. And I think it's worth wondering, if Germany hadn't done that, would the American people have supported going to war against Germany after Pearl Harbor? We'll never know. It's a hypothetical. But I think it's a question worth considering. Does this suggest maybe not? In fact, maybe not especially given the fact that Japan had attacked the United States. Maybe the focus should be on Japan and not on Germany. What the interventionists ultimately succeeded in doing is convincing the public that it was worth risking war, but not convincing them that the United States should enter the war and take on world leadership. Now, that idea was being advocated by a group I haven't mentioned before. It's, co it's called the Fight for Freedom Committee which was basically the most radical faction of the White Committee, the ones who thought, we should just go ahead and declare war. This is our fight. We should fight it ourselves. And they made that case after the Lend-Lease Act. In the spring and summer of 1941, they were openly making the argument, we should declare war. And the public didn't buy it. The public did not want to declare war. It did not convince the public to adopt their view. The political class, though, is different. The political leadership is different. They largely were convinced by the events of World War II that the United States should assume the leading role in world affairs, both in the war and then especially after the war. Pearl Harbor convinced them the United States needed to lead. After Pearl Harbor, it was almost impossible to have a national political career and be known as an isolationist. That was now a negative term in the same way that an appeaser became an, a negative term because of Munich. Nobody wanted to be known as an out-and-out -out isolationist. If you wanted national leadership, you had to be in favor of an interventionist foreign policy, one where the United States would lead in international affairs. That was the consensus in the political class. But it never was the consensus in the public. And that, I think, is an interesting and important point. The gap between the public on the one hand and the political class on the other, I would argue that never fully disappeared. There have always been a large number of Americans 
uncomfortable at least with the idea that the United States should try to run the world, should try to be the world's great leader. I think that's why today, 80 years after the great debate first began, we are once again debating the value of, and again, I don't think this is a coincidence, an America first foreign policy. Questions, comments? All right, I'll see you guys next time. We'll talk about the war in Asia. You can watch Lectures in History every weekend on American History TV. We take you inside college classrooms to learn about topics ranging from the American Revolution to 9-11. That's Saturday at 8 p.m. and midnight Eastern on C-SPAN 3.